I'd like you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. We're not going to look at the whole chapter today. We'll talk a little bit about how it's put together. We're going to look specifically, though, at verses 1 through 6. 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 6. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. The word of the Lord, brothers and sisters. As we go through 2 Corinthians we would do well to remember that it's a letter and try not to read it as a series of chapters, but as a letter. Uh, Paul has a reason that he's writing this letter. He has something very specific he wants to address with the Corinthian church, and his letter's meant to be read as a whole. He didn't send it to Corinth saying, well, why don't you guys get together once a week over the next six or seven weeks or so and read a couple paragraphs of this, go home and think about it, and then come back and read a few more paragraphs. By necessity, that's how we have to go through it. But if you read, if you read the book as a whole, you can catch the flow of Paul's writing. And that's really important to understand what's going on in this epistle. For instance, if we just look at the parts that we've covered already, uh, in the beginning, we read that Paul knows that there's some tension between him and the Corinthian church. He gets it. And he wants to teach them to comfort. He wants to teach them about comforting each other. And in and, and, and doing that, uh, he kind of starts by comforting them, by encouraging them. So Paul intends to diffuse the situation by calling upon the Corinthian church to be ministers of comfort, for comfort to flow through them rather than ministers of division and strife. And in, 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 in becoming these ministers of comfort, they also become exemplars of the gospel. They become uh, shining examples of Christ in them to the community around them. Then, then we, we read that Paul knows that this is true, uh, and this is what happens in chapter 2. Uh, he knows that they can do this, if they're willing to trust in Christ and actively pursue the character and nature of Christ and how they behave towards each other. And now Paul does that. He kind of lays it out there, and then he does it by sharing his firsthand experiences with his own trials. Paul got, has gone through his, his own tough times by trusting in Christ, and he wants the Corinthians to learn that same blessing. So, if we were to summarize and paraphrase chapters 1 and 2, it would be Paul kind of opening up the letter and, and saying in a fashion, uh, I, I know you're going through a rough time, 
I, I, I know this is hard. I, I know that you're upset with me. I've been having a rough time too. But you know something? I've seen Christ in you. I've seen the Lord in you. And I know, I know He's in me. So we should be comforting each other. We should be encouraging each other. And not only us, but we should be encouraging and comforting those people around us. That, that should be our testimony. We should be living the gospel. Uh, it's not just something we share out on the street corners. It's something, it's a way we live. It's a way we, we present Christ to, to each other and to the community around us. So let's rely on Him in us. Let's rely on Him in us to get us through this difficult time to help us settle our difference so that we can get on with being the messengers of the gospel that God has called us to be. So chapter 3 begins to lay that calling out. Paul's not just saying, hey, you've got a calling on you. He's going to tell them how the calling works. He's going to describe it and, and explain how it functions in the life of a believer. Uh, he's going to lay the groundwork for that calling in chapter 3. And then in chapter 4, he'll get to the specific implications of how the calling is supposed to manifest itself in the, in the body of Christ, in the church, and in the life of the believer. So, there's a truth that governs chapter 3, if we're going to divide it up that way. And we'll start looking at that truth this week. We'll see part of it. Uh, we'll finish next week. And by the time we're done, here's a truth that Paul wants us to learn. It's, we are made ministers to the glory of God. We are made, and it's to the Corinthians church, but it's to us as well. We are made ministers to the glory of God. This is part four in our series, I Am Content. The title of this sermon is Minister. So, so as Paul explains this truth uh, in chapter 3, there are two major themes that dominate chapter 3. We're going to look at the first one today. We'll look at the next one next week. Uh, verses 1 through 6, the first theme is the unwritten grace of God. The unwritten grace of God. And in verses 7 through 18, we're going to see the unveiled glory of God. So, as we look at grace, we might want to take just a second and have a clear understanding of what the word grace means. Now, I know when I say grace, we all have some idea of what it means. I know. Uh, if you've been here long enough, you know that grace means unmerited favor. But I want to go a little bit deeper. I want to give you something a little bit more concise as far as our understanding of grace if we're to derive a definition of grace from the Scripture. So you can write this down. It's not in your notes. I want to define the grace of God as this. Quote, It is favor that flows from God solely because of who He is. Favor that flows from God solely because of who He is and without regard for the worth or the merit of the one to whom it flows. That's grace. It's, it's the favor that flows from God solely because of who He is and without regard to the worth or merit of the one to whom it flows. Now, if you can get your arms around that, if you can understand everything that that entails, you'll have a clear vision of grace. So when we say unmerited favor, we mean there's nothing you can do to earn it. We mean that there's nothing in you that is worthy of the grace. It comes from God because of who God is. 
not because of who we are. So that's grace. We'll look at glory and examine it in a similar fashion next week. So this morning, we're going to dwell in verses 1 through 6, the unwritten grace of God. Paul is going to demonstrate God's grace by describing the, the transformation that the Corinthians have gone through. Now, this is something that's popped up in chapter 1, popped up again in chapter 2. Paul's going to get down in, into the nitty-gritty on this one here. And he's going to do this by using two different types of letters as illustrations of what he wants them to see about the unwritten grace of God. We'll see the written letter and what it's all about in verse 1, and then we will see the living letter in verses 2 through 5. So let's start with the written letter. At, at the end of chapter 2, Paul claimed that, that he was unlike those who peddle the gospel for personal gain. He's unlike those who are, are preaching and teaching the gospel so that they can make money, so that they can gain favor in the community. And he explains himself exactly what that means in verse 1 of chapter 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, Paul says? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? Now, let me explain what Paul's talking about here. Travel back then was a whole lot different than it is right now. For one thing, it was a lot more dangerous. There wasn't a whole lot of places to stay. In those towns that had inns, uh, that actually had a place where you could rent a room, the inns weren't always safe. So if you're traveling in between cities, it was treacherous. There was no state patrol out there monitoring the highways and byways between the cities. So a uh, traveler was always in danger from thieves and robbers. When he got into town, he was always in, in a situation where he might be taken advantage of by uh, a dishonest merchant. So if a traveler had a letter... If he had a letter from some government official or in, in the first century Middle East uh, from somebody that was higher up in the church, that letter would open up doors of hospitality. He could generally find a place to stay in town that wasn't necessarily an inn. And it would give him some degree of protection when he was out on the road. He was a representative. He had a letter from somebody who was powerful, for somebody who had authority. The letters were a signal that this person should be not only trusted, but respected for, for who they represent. He could be trusted because he had the letter. Now, Paul wants to remind the Corinthians that he doesn't need a letter. The reason he doesn't need a letter is that he's already commended himself to them. Well, when did he do that? Well, he showed that he was trustworthy on his first trip, the very first trip he made to Corinth, when he presented the gospel to them, and they began to form the church. His, Paul's trustworthiness is evidenced by the existence of the church that he's writing to. Paul's asking this rhetorical question, do, do I need to prove myself again? And he's not a peddler of the gospel. They know who he is. Do I need a letter from someone that you can trust? He's not asking for an answer. He's assuming that the answer is no. He's assuming that they know who he is, that they remember what he did. Paul doesn't feel that he needs a physical letter written by a man. Rather, what he's going to present to them is a living letter written by a heavenly source. 
Well, what, what kind of letter is that? What does that letter look like? And how do you even read this letter written by a heavenly source? Once again, as he did in chapter 2, Paul begins explaining this by appealing to the change that the Corinthians have experienced. He says, you yourselves, in verse 2, you yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. Check that out. I don't need a letter. You're the letter. You're the letter. Written on our hearts to be known and read by everyone. This is a brilliant move by Paul. He knows that there are people who are criticizing him. He knows that people are challenging his apostolic calling. And the Corinthians, he calls the Corinthians Paul's letter of recommendation. And what that does is that puts those critics, that puts anyone who questions the validity of Paul's ministry of his apostleship into questioning the validity of the church. Paul's the one who brought the church. Paul established the church at Corinth. If you're you're challenging Paul's authority, you're challenging the church itself. They would also be calling into question the change that the Corinthians are going through. Paul's mentioned this twice now. You know that you've been changed. And for those people that are challenging me, they're challenging the fact that maybe you haven't been changed. Challenging the presence of the Holy Spirit in them. And the irony of this is, is that Paul's critics, in calling into doubt his authority, were actually undermining the very church that they're trying to influence. Maybe they're trying to take the church over. What they're really telling the church is, you don't even exist. Paul's not really an apostle. You're not really a church. Do you see? Do you see the type of division that mean-spirited criticism causes? Mean-spirited division rises up out of mean-spirited criticism. And, and you know how it starts. You've seen it. It's happened here. Divisive people start whispering in the corners. And, you know, as soon as they find out that some people are listening to them, they eventually become more open about their criticisms. And they find out that they've got a public forum, they've got a public soapbox, and people start listening to them. And, and instead of bringing the church together... Instead of ministering unity, they become purveyors of doubt. They become, they become merchants of more whispers in the cor- corners and more challenges. The end result is always, and, and if, if those of you that have gone uh, through a church split, maybe in other churches, their end result is always a lot of hurt feelings, a lot of personal pain for everybody, not just the people that are upset, but for everybody. A lot of everything but unity, love, and grace. That's what's supposed to be flowing through us. us. That's not what happens in those cases. And that's exactly what was happening in Corinth. And Paul wants to mitigate that situation. He wants to bring the criticism down to something that's peaceable. And he does it by pointing out that their very existence as a church is proof of his apostleship. They are his letter of recommendation. But Paul takes that a step further. He goes a little bit deeper with it. Remember, those people who carried a letter of recommendation were trusted because of the letter. He calls the Corinthians a letter. They're Paul's letter, a letter to Paul. Look where Paul carries his letter, where he carries them. 
The Corinthians are written on Paul's heart, and he carries them everywhere he goes. He brags about them. He's already told them that he boasts about them. Paul is posting selfies of him and the Corinthian church on Facebook. And he's doing it for everybody. He's getting a lot of likes on that. Paul's walking through Macedonia with a selfie stick going, these are, these are the people that I love. And people are eating it up. They, they are known, and Paul's letter is read by all. And Paul's boast, is, it, it's not just an empty one. He's not just... He's not just blowing smoke here. Look at the encouragement he passes on to the Corinthians in verse 3. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Paul says they show. The Greek word here is phenerumenai. And it, it, it means to to make manifest, show in, in the sense of making something manifest. In other words, they, they are exemplars. They are examples of a letter from God. Now, Paul has already laid the groundwork for these official letters that people carry around with them. Uh, they're calling cards. They're endorsements. They're, they're a get-out-of-jail-free card. Uh, they're letters of recommendation, and, and they bear worldly implications. They have worldly power. Paul's already acknowledged that. Now he wants to take that te- teaching and move it into the spiritual realm. He wants to show them the contrast between physical letters written by men and heavenly letters that God writes. So, now, you would think when you hear about heavenly letters that Paul writes, I mean, that God writes, we're seeing one of them here. So you would think at first blush that, that Paul's talking about the Scriptures, about uh, the inspired Scriptures, but he's not. That's not what he's talking about here. Paul is writing about an entirely different kind of letter, a letter that is written in and through the Corinthians themselves. They, they are a very special letter. And if you look at this verse closely, you'll see that they are a special letter that bears four significant attributes that characterize the letter that the Corinthians are, really characterize the Corinthian church. The first one, it's from Christ. The letter is from Christ. They are a letter from Christ. Well, that's fine. Who's the letter written to? Well, I mean, this is a no-brainer. It's written to Corinth. It's written to the city they live in. They are a recommendation to the people that live in Corinth. But remember, Corinth is this travel center. Uh, The world is passing through Corinth. On their way to Rome, you go through Corinth. As you're leaving Rome, you go back through Corinth to the rest of the world. So they are a letter not to just Corinth, but to everybody who comes through Corinth. And because they are in the Corinthian church, they're also a letter to everywhere the Corinthian church goes. Anytime a member of the church goes anywhere, they carry the letter with them. They're a recommendation to everybody in the world. You see how wise Paul was in bringing up this issue of letters? The letters were something they could all relate to. Now he's saying, you know those letters? That's you. That's you. Paul wants them to understand what it means to belong to Christ. He wants them to get a vision for what it means to be part of the church. What it means to be part of the body of Christ. 
They bear the same physical, same qualities as a physical letter. They are a recommendation from Christ, and they are His trusted representatives. They take His message everywhere they go. Christ has endorsed them. Christ has trusted them. And now He's sending them into the world. Sending them as a letter from Christ. Number two, they were delivered by us. Now, what he means here is they were delivered by Paul. And the ESV is very accurate in how it translates this word. Uh, but as is typically with, with the Greek language, uh, sometimes when we get to too literal of a translation, it doesn't always make a lot of sense. We don't get the flavor of what Paul's saying. Uh, the, the word he uses here for delivered is a complex Greek word, diakonos say. Uh, it means delivered, but it means delivered in the sense of being ministered in and through. Now, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which is a really great translation, translates delivered by us as produced by us. Paul's saying, you've been produced by me. The NIV says that they are the result of his ministry. The King James says that they are ministered to by us. And what it gets down to is Paul wants them to know that the Lord has used him to bring the gospel to them, that he's been the vessel for the gospel. The gospel that transformed them came through Paul, and the gospel that made them a letter uh, from Christ came through Paul. So the third attribute of the letter is that it was inscribed by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who wrote the letter. The Holy Spirit is the one who brought the change, the one who moves miraculously in them and through them and is a witness to the presence of Christ among them. So the fourth attribute is the letter is spiritual. It's a spiritual letter, one written by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not, it's not a physical letter. It's not in ink. It's not on stone. But in the hearts of the Corinthians... It's manifested in their hearts. They are a letter of God's amazing grace, unmerited favor. So if we're just looking at this, up to this point, it really kind of looks like Paul's maybe blowing his own horn a little bit, maybe bragging, but he, he doesn't stop there. He wants to make it clear who has done all this. So he starts to explain himself in verse 4 where he restates his complete trust in God. He's placed his reputation in his hands. He's placed his reputation and, and his future in the hands of Christ. And so he restates his trust, uh, but wants them to understand that that trust comes in and through an intimate relationship with Christ. So he makes that clear, and then he puts a, a giant exclamation point on what he's saying in verse 5. Not, he says, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God. And what Paul's saying here is he can't do this. He can't accomplish any of this on his own. He can't lay claim to any of the change that has occurred in them. If he was able to do anything at all, it, would, it came through him from God. Now, 
This is Paul being humble, but it's also Paul being very realistic. The church is, and we need to think about this, because the church is there because of his ministry. They all know that. The church is there because he brought the gospel. We all know that he suffered. We all know that he had a tough time getting to Corinth. Now he's having a tough time while he's away. And Paul says, nothing happens unless God makes it happen. Paul's not looking for credit. At a time where, where maybe a lot of folks, maybe some of us, would be looking for some credit. Would be saying, do you know how hard I worked on this? Do you know how long I've been doing this? Do you know how, how hard it was getting here? Uh, you know, and, and, and thinking that what, maybe if we impress upon people uh, everything that I've done, they'll appreciate it more. Okay? So, that's not what Paul's doing. Paul is pointing towards Christ. He wants God to receive the glory, not himself. And I think, I've got to be honest with you, I, I think this is hard to do at times. I don't know if you've struggled with this, maybe some of you have. Wanting to have credit, wanting to have glory for the work that you've produced. I have. Sometimes I want to get credit for the things I've done. I had to tell you something. I was sharing the gospel with a young man in time. That, this was a little while back. Um, I'd stopped in to see him, uh, started talking to him, uh, told him about Jesus Christ, bought him a Bible. He was listening intently, but he kept on going, oh, I don't know, you know, it's not for me. Uh, uh, my mom and dad were religious, and, you know, and so I, I thought the Bible would impress him. Here's a Bible. Here, you know, start reading here. <laughs> and I walked into his shop one day, and um, he, he looked at me from across the counter. He had this big smile on his face. You won't believe what happened, Pastor John. What? I got saved. I went, whoa, awesome. What happened? He said, my girlfriend took me to church yesterday, and the pastor presented the gospel, and I heard it, and I, all of a sudden I understood and I went down on my knees and I prayed for Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior. And I went, inside I went, no. <laughs> inside I was going, no, 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 no. I was the one who presented the gospel. I, remember the Bible I brought you? I even told you about what happens if you don't believe in Christ that you burn in hell. Remember, that's what I was saying inside. All I could do is look at him and go, oh, great. I said, so, you'll come to church next Sunday. I'm thinking, well, okay, you know. He went, oh, no, no, I'm going to go to the church where I got saved. And I walked out going, what was that about? God? <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, I bought the Bible. I've been paying too much for coffee. And, 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 and he got saved at another church. I was so disappointed. I walked away thinking, you know, after, after I got over that, I said, what, what is wrong with me? What, what is wrong with my heart? Why do I want the credit? It, it didn't make me not want the credit. But I'm wondering why this is happening. Shouldn't I be happy that this guy's going to be in heaven, that we'll see each other there? Isn't that the point? I've got to tell you, I... I had some serious business to do with the Holy Spirit. I, I had to repent. And I had to work on that. And I, I praise God for His grace. I praise God that 
God didn't just zap me for, for being proud or, or for being petulant. You know, He is a God of grace. Amen? He is. But you know what? He's a God who refines His people. And He was refining me at that particular moment. Watch this. By showing me my pride, by revealing that there was something hindering a deeper relationship with Him, something impeding my going deeper with the Lord, He wasn't punishing me. God wasn't mad at me. He was inviting me deeper. He was calling me into the deep water. Now, I know this is true because of what happened. In showing me my pride, in dealing with my arrogance, as I asked him to forgive me, as I pleaded for him to continue to change my heart, something incredible happened. Even as I was praying to prayer, the Holy Spirit seemed like he lifted a million pounds from my shoulder. I didn't even know what was being lifted. All I knew was all of a sudden I had a new sense of freedom. He helped me realize that it wasn't my work that saved the boy, it was his. And as that realization settled in my mind, I also realized that I wasn't responsible for that guy's salvation or anybody else's. Think about that for a second. I didn't I didn't have to see the results. I didn't have to get the blessing. All of a sudden, all the pressure was off. I didn't have to get it right. I didn't have to convince anyone. All I had to do was be faithful to share. The rest, the rest is up to the Holy Spirit. The rest is in His hands. Now, the incident made me realize what Paul already knows. It is, it is God who does the work. It is God who changes hearts. All we have to do is be faithful to share. God is the one who brings about the transformation. He does it for His glory. He does it in His timing. And i got to tell you something. It's a sobering lesson when you see this. It's, it, it's a sobering lesson, one that will set you free in sharing the gospel. But I, you know... Let, Sharing the gospel, well, that's out there. That, that's out on the street corner. That's in the coffee shop. That's in the school. Let's bring it into our living room. Because it gives you freedom there as well. If we understand that we can't change anyone, only God can, it frees us from the burden of trying... Listen. It frees us from the burden of trying to be the Holy Spirit for someone else. It frees us from the burden of taking the role of the Holy Spirit and trying to mold and shape someone into our image. If we get that. You know what? We don't have to be frustrated with anybody. We don't have to be angry at anybody. We don't have to see them change. All we have to do, you know what? All, all we have to do is love them. All we have to do is love them the way God loves us. Amen? We leave the change up to Him. What an incredible blessing. 
we're not responsible for fixing the people around us. Now, that's a lot. But there's more here. There's something beautiful that Paul wants to share with the Corinthians. He wants them to know that their hearts have not been touched by Paul. Their hearts have been touched by the living God. This is how God saves, how He moves in in people's lives. He uses us, but God reaches inside and He changes. He changes the Corinthians. He changes you and me. He changes the people around us. If you've been saved, think about this. If you count Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you've confessed your sins to Him and ask Him for forgiveness, believe He's the only Son of God, then your heart, the very deepest recesses of your being, has been touched by the hand of God. And it wasn't, it wasn't momentary. It's eternal. That means the Spirit is still in there. He's still shaping you. He's still forming you, molding you, just like he was in the Corinthians. This is some pretty heavy stuff that Paul's teaching him, isn't it? We went from a letter and a couple examples and illustrations to God reaching into our souls and shaping us. It's about to get heavier. Paul gets to the meat. I mean, that was just, that was just the appetizer. Paul gets to the meat of what he wants to say in verse 6. He's talking about God who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Looking back at verse 5, we see he's talking about God. God has made us sufficient. Sufficient. This is Paul saying, God has made us all sufficient. Iakonoisim. It's another complex word. It means sufficient, but in the sense that uh, we've been made fit to do something. Think about this. And while we're thinking about it, you know, looking at other translations, again, can be helpful. Holman Christian Bible says that He has made us competent. The King James says, He also hath made us able And all the translations are good, including ESV, because they have one thing in common. They all describe God as the one who enables. God not only changes, but He enables. He's the one who empowers. God is the one who makes us fit. God's the one who makes us sufficient. He's the one who wrote the letter. For what? What is the letter for? What does the letter make us fit for? What does it make it sufficient for? For us to be ministers. Oh, wait a minute. The the moment I say ministers, some of you start thinking about a kindly old guy that had long black robes on. Talked about the Bible all the time. Maybe came over the house at Christmas time and prayed a prayer over your house. We get that picture. But again, that's not what Paul's doing here. Hopefully that's a fond memory. But you know what? That cuts short the meaning of what Paul's trying to convey. Paul's saying we're all ministers. All of us. Ministers of what? 
Because I know we don't always feel like ministers. Amen? Ministers of what? Ministers of a new covenant. Watch what Paul's doing here. Started out talking about this physical letter written by men, then compared it to the Corinthians as a letter written on the hearts. He described that letter four ways. The letter is from Christ, was delivered by Paul, it was written by the Holy Spirit, and it's a spiritual letter. So, and now Paul tells them the purpose of the letter, why the letter was written. And the purpose is to recommend them as ministers of the new covenant. Paul's not saying this for the first time. He's actually quoting a prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. Listen, 31 through 33. Jeremiah says to to the Jews, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Isn't that what Paul just told the Corinthians? And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Paul is saying that day, that day that Jeremiah spoke about, that day's here. It's happening in you right now. The day of the law written on the stones is past. Now I want to be careful here, because the law still plays a part in the life of a believer. That's another subject we can talk about. But Paul's trying to describe the transition from the, new co- from the old covenant to the new covenant. So that old covenant brought judgment. The new covenant brings life. Well, how did the old covenant bring judgment? I'll tell you. It was a covenant marked by the law. Now, Paul says that the letter of the law kills. He says it right here. Well, how does that happen? He explains himself in the book of Romans. He tells us that the law reveals sin. And the consequences of sin are what? Death. Since no one can abide by all of the commandments, everybody dies. Follow me on this. Nobody can keep all the commandments, so everybody dies. Romans 3.20, For by the works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. That's the results of the old covenant. We're made aware of our sin. And Paul wants them to see that they are now ministers of the new covenant. The covenant of grace. Well, that old covenant is pretty bad news. Because everybody dies. What is this new covenant? How does this new covenant work? It's right there in Romans. We looked at Romans 3.20. If you read on through 21 through 24, listen to what Paul says. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, there's a context of a very familiar verse. There is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And falling short of the glory of God is missing the mark, which is sinning, which brings death. Then Paul says in verse 24 of Romans 3, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. The old covenant reveals sin and kills. Who does it kill? Everyone. Everyone. If everyone dies, who can live? Well, the only ones that can live are those that are saved by grace. Listen, a dying man's sentence to execution can only be commuted by the one who has authority over his death. You've seen it in the movies. We're waiting to hear from the governor. I'm walking down the aisle. Somebody stop me. The governor is the only one who has authority over his death. A dying man's sentence can only be commuted by the one who has authority over his death. Jesus died for our sins. And when he rose, he rose with the keys to hell. He rose with the authority over what? Over death. So, We can live in and through Jesus Christ. There's life in Jesus Christ. This is the work of God. This is the work of the Holy Spirit who gives life. So Paul says that the Corinthians are God's letter, a letter that testifies to God's transformational power and His grace through His only Son, Jesus Christ. And by His Spirit, working with the work that Christ did on the cross, He brings us life. This is a letter to the Corinthians. But, I mean, you see the implications, don't you? It's a letter to us as well. It's a letter that reaches deep into our souls. But just like the Corinthians, we're called to do more than just live. God didn't save us just so that we can enjoy life. We're called, we're called to be ministers. Well, what does that mean? I mean, are we all called to study Greek and Hebrew? And are we all called to stand at somebody's side as they pass on into the next kingdom. People are saying, I don't even have a long black robe, John. I don't know how you want me to be a minister. Let me remind you of another group of people in the Bible. Actually, two groups, but the one group that kind of sets the template for how we're ministers. They show up in numbers. It's a group of people. It's a tribe a tribe called the Levites, that the Levites are called as a tribe to serve in the tabernacle. Those who staffed the tabernacle fell into two groups of people. You had priests and you had Levites. The priests taught. They performed the sacrifices. 
they directly served the spiritual needs and growth of the people. The Levites, they guarded the tabernacle. They, they, they did the chores. They maintained it. They, they broke it down. They put it back up. They, they carried it when they would travel. They, they cleaned it. They were responsible for all of the furnishings in, the, chap, in the, the tabernacle. They guarded it when it was set up. They guarded the elements of the tabernacle when it was torn down. But what we find out eventually is that all of them, the Levites and the priests, they're all preachers and teachers. They're all ministers in a fashion. Now, they're not all preachers and teachers the way we think of preacher and teachers, but they were all ministers in a very real way. And the reason it was set up that way is because without the Levites, the tabernacle couldn't function. There weren't enough priests to do all this work. The priests needed the Levites, and the Levites needed the priests in a very real way. They're all ministers. They're ministers that worked to honor and glorify God in everything they did. That's what Paul wants the Corinthians to see. That's what Paul wants us to see. We're a body. We need each other. Every one of us is called to minister in some fashion. Some of us are going to preach and teach. Some of us are going to tear down. Some of us are going to build up. Some of us are going to clean. Some of us are going to carry. Some of us are going to make some cupcakes for stories in the park. Some of us are going to buy water. Some of us are going to carry the water down to the park. Some of us are going to go down there and help feed those kids and be a representation, a letter of recommendation to this community in the name of Jesus Christ. This is how we do things together. Some of us are going to pray about that. Some of us are going to lend their hands. Some of us are going to help finance it. We're going to work together as a body the same way the Levites and the priests did. The same way that Paul is calling the Corinthian church to do. Without every one of us doing our part, the church will not work. Without every one of the Levites and the priests doing their part, the tabernacle didn't work. It didn't get put up. It didn't get torn down. And once it was put up, there was no teaching and sacrifice that went on in it unless everybody's doing their part. And here's the key to all of this. Each of us, every one of us, is made sufficient. We don't have to work up to this. We don't have to build some talent or some, some capability. We are made fit. We are enabled to do our part, not by our own efforts, but by the work and the power of the Holy Spirit. God has written on our hearts, loved ones. He's touched the essence of our being. It's a gift of grace. We are His letter of recommendation. We are the living, breathing testimony of Jesus Christ to this world, to our Corinth, to Warrington, to the people around us, to the people we work with, to the people we go to school with, to the people in the coffee shops and the supermarkets. We are a letter of recommendation. We are called to minister together called to be messengers, to be carriers of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the way we do it is not by all of us doing the same thing, but by all of us working together, working in harmony, working in unity for the glory of God, and not calling credit to ourselves, but giving it all to Him. Let's pray.